So the system includes a number of elements of the people is one, the work processes are another, the customer experience is a third, the culture sometimes comes into it, the um, power plays and more intangible things start to inform what you can and can't do. There is a question mark in organisation design of whether you can design by movement, as I've just described, or by mandate, which is a top-down approach, where you just tell people this is the way we're going to organise. In my experience, the best approach is both. Amazon did a logo redesign. A social media person, influencer, no, nowhere in any hierarchy, just a commentator on Amazon, didn't like the new design generated a whole swathe of other in kind of comments on it and they had to redesign the redesign. We work physical spaces have community managers who have a whole program of activities to get the people individually renting the space to kind of form a community and they've been very successful at it. And uh, some organisations and I've noticed on the job advert sites that I look at are now looking for community managers for online community building. Hello everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Recast. Today I'm joined by a very interesting person. Her name is Dr. Naomi Stanford, who's an author and an organization design practitioner. She's worked with some of the large you know, multinational companies, including PwC, British Airways, Marks & Spencer, Xerox. And then I think she moved to US, sort of working as an organization design consultant with actually a range of organizations in government, nonprofit, and private sector. And since then, she's returned to UK to work in government sector. And now she's freelancing as an organization design consultant and advisor. Why I'm interested to talk to actually Naomi today is where very few of us, I think, have the liberty to go to our offices to work. So I think most of us are, you know, logging in from home. And hence, I think the very term organization, I think, has undergone a lot of shift and change. And I think we'll discuss that and actually a lot more with, with actually Naomi today. Welcome to my show, Naomi. Thank you very much. And thanks very much for inviting me to be with you today. It's a great privilege. So Naomi, let's dive into this conversation. You've been an organization design practitioner and a consultant for many, many years now. What is this term all about? What is organizational design to begin with for those who don't who are not familiar with this term. Right. That is a loaded question in one sense. In the sort of popular parlance of it, people equate organisation design with an organisation chart, a visual of hierarchies and boxes and lines and the relationship of people to leaders, etc. That is not how I describe organisation design. And that is not how most organisation designers now think about organisation design. And if you look at the history of organisations, they are, in fact, the theory surrounding how organisations are developed is changing. All practitioners now think of organisation design as looking at a whole system. So the system includes a number of elements of the people is one, the work processes are another, the customer experience is a third, the culture sometimes comes into it, the um, power plays and more intangible things start to inform what you can and can't do. And if I often use an analogy of a road traffic system, because you've got the infrastructure of the actual roads, 
you've got the vehicles on the roads, you've got the differing skills of the drivers driving the vehicles, and you've got the rules and regulations which differ by country or location about what you can and can't do on the road. Drive on the right, drive on the left, stop at the roundabout, follow these signs, etc. And if you think about the road traffic system, an organisation is similarly, the design of the road traffic system is analogous to the design of the organisation. You have to look at all the elements that make up the, the ability to drive safely in that particular analogy. So is this system bigger than the people who make that system? Because I think if actually there are employees who are actually listening to this, is there a real scope or chance for them to bring about positive impact within their organizations using, you know, some of the design principles? Or, you know, the system is much bigger than like the total sum of all people who are working there? That's a great question. And it's unfortunately the answer is both and. Yes, they can make a huge difference because if an organization is the sum of its people and the um, systems and processes and governance structures that make it up. And if enough people make, want to effect a change in a sort of movement way, they can do it. And there have been some very interesting examples of that in, in the last year or so. I don't know if you've been following Amazon and the um, Bessemer Warehouse example, where the employees wanted to unionize. And a similar thing went on at Google at the parent company, Alphabet. And that was a movement from the ground up of people who wanted to organize. And that has been effective. In fact, the Bessemer one, the, the Amazon leadership said they couldn't organize ultimately, but the issue hasn't gone away and it's now being looked at. So they, they raised awareness, they brought it to the attention of the leadership. The Google Alphabet one has been organized. So that's been a, an interesting difference between the two major tech companies. But there is a question mark in organization design of whether you can design by movement, as I've just described, or by mandate, which is a top-down approach, where you just tell people this is the way we're going to organize. In my experience, the best approach is both. You can begin with a movement and you can try and get the mandate for it, like the alphabet employees did. Or you can begin with a mandate and try and generate a movement from it with the people. You can't just do movement and you can't just do mandate. Um, but people are often a lot more powerful than they think they are, particularly if they um, act in concert. I think this is a very interesting point that you touched upon. I think you use the word movement. I think in popular media, you That's will right. read stuff like employee activism. Yes. Right? So I think as an organization design consultant, are those movements or is employee activism healthy for the company? Or it all you depends on you know, how you really take it. <laughs> well, you ask such great questions because what I was thinking about in my book I've talked that's coming out next March, I've talked about four types of leaders. The formal leader who's appointed, like this chief financial officer or what have you. The formal leaders who are outside the organization but have huge impact, like politicians, for example. And then there's two other groups, the informal leaders within the organization. And now you're talking potentially about employee activists who could be union representatives or people who just feel strongly about something, um, who can be very, very powerful and often a lot more powerful than the formal leaders recognize. And the informal leaders who are outside the organization who can 
influence the organization. And you see that in those social media influencers, for example. They can have a big impact on organizations and change the way. Another Amazon example is an interesting one about the recent logo. Amazon did a logo redesign. A social media person influencer, no, nowhere in any hierarchy, just a commentator on Amazon, didn't like the new design, generated a whole swathe of other in kind of comments on it, and they had to redesign the redesign. So activism can come from a lot of different informal contexts. You can see it in publicly run shareholder companies with their shareholder activism. So you being alert for activism that could generate a movement is quite a useful thing to, for organizations to either be part of or keep an eye on or both. Right. I mean, from your practical advice and, you know, from your experience of working with so many different organizations, are there any markers? Are there any indicators, you know, that leaders can identify if a potential issue or a topic is becoming a movement or, you know, will potentially get into the activism space. I mean, in your experience, have you come across any such indicators? There are indicators, but unfortunately, leaders are often not alert enough to them. There's a very interesting report on, I don't know if you know the concept of organizational network mapping, where you map the interactions that people are having with each other. And this particular report looks at, uh, at who leaders have contact with. And leaders have contact with people at a couple of levels below them, but not at the most kind of junior level of organizations. But the people at the junior levels of the organizations, by various methods, are in fact have a lot more reach into the organization. And that gap between what leaders are able to access in an organization and what is actually going on is a very crucial gap to start thinking about. And you can start using techniques like organizational network mapping, which is a, a kind of actual design technique. But you can help leaders to think that they don't know everything, that maybe they should go out and work in a call center if they've got a call center. Maybe they should go out and buy goods in their supermarket and see what it feels like or institute a customer complaint themselves and see what response they get to just get a good view of the different types of work going on in their organization that they're not alert to in their own day-to-day -day, but can be they you can see seeds of activism in all of those things you've worked across private and public sector and i think just on the face of it i think you know the two ecosystems sound and behave very differently Right. I mean, they, they sort of both have people, but their end goals are very different. I mean, one is more profit driven. The other one is, I think, more welfare or, you know, mission driven when you sort of, you know, work with these two different sectors. More from an organization design perspective, are there any clear differentiators? Because I think you've worked with governments and, you know, nonprofits yourself. How is working, you know, as an organizational design consultant with public sector differs from when you are getting engaged by a Fortune 500? Well, in many respects, the, the Fortune 500s are a lot easier because they can move much more quickly if they choose to. And they have a lot more resources at their disposal, which they can, you know, redeploy into different directions very much more quickly. The, the tendency is that they can do more quickly if they choose to. 
government sector organisations are part of a much more rigidly controlled system. And they're also potentially hedged with um, citizen interests or political interests or vying for reputation or whatever. And uh, because in traditional governments, what in the UK is called the machinery of government is very, very slow moving and very, very difficult to change. It's a lot more difficult to affect real change in a government setting. Um, apart from, and this is where actually the two are, have a sort of common view of, they're both fairly short term. Politicians in, in a lot of countries, by virtue of the, the democratic process, the electoral cycle, but in the um, private sector, you know, they're looking for shareholder value. They want, so the re, they're looking for short term kind of immediate fixes is similar in both types of organisations. And I do think that they are similar in some ways, but very, very different in their ability to essentially move resources quickly and make quick decisions. I think when we start talking about organization design, I think uh, a designer at times is, is called into the boardroom when there is a particular problem or a challenge that needs to be addressed. Now, we understand that, you know, as the world changes post-pandemic, people are now working from home. They don't have offices to go to. At times, you know, now, now we are reading a lot about mental health, which has now been sort of discussed quite a bit more from a corporate context. So I just wanted to ask you this question that, you know, if I just pick these two big topics today, one, working from home or working from anywhere, because I think that has attracted a lot of debate, I think, in media, because I think different organizations have taken different stance. And the second is what we sort of traditionally used to call as organization culture, but that I think that was also intrinsically woven to the fact that we all were working at a common place, right? We all learned to coexist. And I think all our colleagues, all our employees, all our staff members, you know, are trying to get along with each other. And I think in that process, you know, they define their own culture. So let's break this topic into two parts. One is the whole concept of work from anywhere or work from home. More from an organization design perspective, how do you see this trend emerging? I mean, the popular trend here is hybrid working, three days office, two days at home. And I think that's what everybody is actually now trying to resort to, because that's the easier one, right? I mean, just take the middle ground. Don't take a position, sort of give people the autonomy, the flexibility to say, come to office on certain days and then, you know, work from home on the others. But as an organization design, I mean, would the literature inform us anything new that corporate leaders can learn from this particular discussion? Yeah, that's another great question. I think this is, we are in the kind of very early stages of this discussion. And I think there's a tendency to think that there is an answer. And we don't really know yet if there's an answer. And if we could view ourselves as experimenting at this point, that would be a better approach that we're all trying this out to see what happens. I have certain reservations about the idea that everybody works from home or can work anywhere because there are vast swathes of the working population and they are represented in most organisations where they simply can't work from home. Their job precludes it. If you're a bus driver, for example, or a um, nurse or a shop assistant, there's no possibility of working from home because your workplace is where you interact with your customers. Now, organisations take a supermarket chain. 
They've got a mixed workforce of office workers and frontline, I'll call them workers. Now, if you say that if you focus all your attention on the office workers, which is, is the tendency at the moment, how do you get a kind of feeling of equity and we're all valued into the organisation? And that's where your question about culture starts to come into play, I think. Um, because I don't know yet whether this real focus on hybrid working will create a two-tier, rather toxic atmosphere in organisations with a mixed workforce. I think if you, if you have an organisation which is where actually every single person could work from home, like a software games company or something, then it's not an issue. But where there's a mixed workforce, hospital, th then it does become an issue. And I haven't heard much conversation about that. And I did write to the, um, our, the UK's Office of National Statistics because I don't think that purely desk-bound workers are a huge proportion of the workforce. But I don't know that. And I asked them if they could tell me what proportion of the UK workforce was actually desk-bound, i.e. had the ability to work from anywhere. And they, the re reply was they don't keep those figures. So I don't really know. But when I look around just walking down the street, for example, and I see trash collectors and road sweepers and shop assistants and bus drivers, that seems to me quite a lot of people. And so I think that going back to your actual question, how do we approach it? I think we need to think really carefully about how you get hybridity, which I think is a kind of a good thing, into an organisation without creating two types of work people. And if potentially, but I don't know if it would really work, the idea of having a feeling of equality or equal value or flexible working patterns. So instead of calling it hybrid, you called it flexible. And then you potentially could get bus drivers on a flexible working pattern or shop assistants so that you're, you're making the label inclusive, not the even if you're offering different work patterns within that label. But I do think that, so that's a kind of view of hybridity. The fact, I mean, that I'm talking to you now and I'm in the UK, it's just absolutely amazing and marvellous that I can, in fact, interact, depending on time zones, with anybody in the world. Sure. And the technology is absolutely superb for doing that and, and getting better all the time, obviously. But, and that is a major plus for some organisations because it opens up the labour market where it could be more open. It also opens up the idea that it could make diversity and inclusion a lot more of a reality. The downside is, and I, you alluded to it a bit, little bit earlier, is that, that kind of how do you build a sense of community? Correct and the culture around that. But again, in design terms, there are, there are some quite good examples already of people being able to do that. I don't know if you know the organisation WeWork, which had physical office spaces for people to rent kind of by the day or hour or whatever. And the WeWork physical spaces have community managers who have a whole programme of activities to get the people individually renting the space to kind of form a community. And they've been very successful at it. And uh, some organisations, and I've noticed on the job advert sites that I look at, are now looking for community managers for online community building. 
and that that is you know in design terms that is a new role so you design the role it's a new way of think of helping people interact with each other so the work processes could be different it's a new way of thinking about onboarding people so there's a whole design implication around thinking around how do you create a community of online workers to back to my earlier point within that online community how do you include the non-online people into that Correct. sense of community i think those are very interesting thoughts and then i think we briefly touched upon the whole cultural aspect of organization and we know i think concepts like mental health i think now are becoming you know sort of more and more prevalent that is also relevant as well to discuss those topics because i think if you're sitting in front of a screen taking calls after calls for 9 hours a day 5 days a week i think it's going to take a toll on you and your mental health right and i think because a lot of that communication today happens through these chat messengers where you know we all would write very short form messages and sort of trying to articulate and explain and i think that creates you know like a lot of miscommunication and you know that that also then impacts the you know actually the very culture of the organization because i think that's where the misunderstandings starts to happen and then that's where you know the toxicity sort of comes into play you know where people misunderstand each other you know they don't want to work with each other anymore and so i think would you say that as an organizational design practitioner there is a fix to this because i think this is now the reality this is how we communicate these are the channels that we rely on to pass on our message and if we are not careful we can sort of rub people the wrong way and i think it can impact organizations at large which many probably people are not realizing it today but i think it just may implode within their respective organization so what's your take on that yeah i think that's a very real issue and i think again i've been looking at some legal cases around whatsapp conversations not necessarily the content of them but the ability of closed communities to exclude people in their work group from being part of the whatsapp group and some of them have been very very damaging to the people involved and what organizations tend to do is have policies and processes which themselves are not very robust and and it's very very difficult to control whatsapp messaging groups because they're outside the normal it function i focus on whatsapp because that was the one i was looking at but there is something and again i don't think we're very good at it yet about making it very very clear what the values of the organization are and what behavior is absolutely not going to be tolerated but the other question and i was thinking about it earlier today is that we're living in an increasingly polarized society i read an article yesterday about it you know the people who are well you see it particularly in i call i talk about the anti vaxxers because it's so kind of relevant at the moment people who think everyone should be vaccinated and people who think that vaccination is is absolutely not on the cards and that's a there isn't a middle ground of people trying to understand each other's perspectives and we seem to be losing organizationally and in society and that there's probably an interaction there that organizations reflect society and vice versa that an inability to sort of explore really what is behind other people's points of view and in some organizations i've worked in i've developed forums for having those explorations now people have to be willing to participate in them or think that they're a good idea rather than a nutty idea but that one that was very powerful was um 
I worked for Mercer, the HR consulting company at the time. And we got a tobacco company as a client. And I had an intern working with me. And he said he didn't want to have anything to do with the tobacco company because he wasn't a smoker and he didn't believe in tobacco companies, blah, blah, blah. Which, well, actually, he just he had to become an intern at Mercer. He had to sign a contract saying he work, would work with their clients. But it put, lay that aside for the moment. But I thought that was a very interesting response. And to cut a long story short, it ended up in a, a complete office, it was in San Francisco, discussion of the moral dilemmas that consultants face and how they tackle them. And the entire organization, including the managing partner, participated in it and talked about how they um, felt about it and were there any clients that Mercer wouldn't take on. So the, that allowing the time and the interest in having exploratory forums, I think, is one design approach. And you could design those in to the organization. It would, that wouldn't be difficult. It would just take willpower, essentially. I actually know from your previous discussions that you've been writing the third edition of your book, which is due for its release in March 2022. Can you just give us an early peek into what this book is about and how is it different from the previous two editions? Yes. Well, last um, February, when the publisher said, would I write a third edition? I said no, because it's a absolutely un unbelievably labor-intensive activity. And I said, no, I'm not writing another book, thank you. And then when the coronavirus really hit the UK in March, I thought, my goodness, there's so much going on. This would be absolutely fascinating to write a book about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I changed my mind. And it has been absolutely fascinating. The pandemic made you change your mind in 30 days. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So the, along with, you know, loads of other people changing their minds about things, the, um, because what's happening in organization design terms is you can start to see very clearly the word agility coming into play, which we've had around for the last, say, five years on the kind of top of the agenda. Agile organizations who are resilient and adaptive have done pretty well through the pandemic. And organizations which are less agile or, or less questioning of their assumptions or less resilient have done much less well. Now, in design terms, looking at why that is and what the triggers are of success or failure in this incredibly challenging environment are very, very interesting. And in fact, governments, aside from my previous comments about government, have been very, very responsive, very, very rapidly. And they have done pretty well for the most part in a kind of if we look back since, there have been huge difficulties, but we're in an unknown situation. So what's different is much more focus on that. You mentioned the word earlier, signals and triggers, and what, what are we seeing that isn't immediately obvious? So I've got a whole section now on, on signals, on pattern detection, on meaning making, um, and your questions about culture around the meaning making. So that section on signals, patterns, and meaning-making are completely new. The section on leadership, the four types of leaders, is completely new. There's a, a chapter on culture, which is also a new chapter, on, on what people talk about an organisational culture. There isn't an organisational culture. There are multiple cultures within an organisation, and it's trying to identify the common ground in that if we need to and where it's okay to not have common ground 
and where it's essential to have common ground, which also would start to potentially look at the toxicity or cultural dimensions that we don't want in the organisation. And I talk in that chapter about professional cultures, like accountants have their own language, HR people have their own sort of language. The national culture comes into play, which is very interesting in these... um, where we're online, how we're interpreting national cultures which we may have no actual day-to-day experience of. And then the network cultures of people who are in interest groups of one kind or another. And in, in the kind of old days of organisations when it was physical, you can remember the smoker's corner where everybody had to go outside the building and stand in a kind of bus shelter to smoke a cigarette. And they, they developed a network because the interest was having that place to smoke and chat, but they could be at any level in the hierarchy and they create a network. So those three cultures are continuously interacting alongside any intentional ideas about what the organization culture should ideally be. That's great. And if I just then wrap this you know, entire discussion by asking you a very broad question that if you have a crystal ball and you are an organization design consultant and an advisor, What do you think is in store for organizations who would operate, say, in 2030, 2035, 2040? How would the organizations of future really look like? What's your take? Well, I think that's a great question. I'm getting increasingly interested in the kind of digital kind of totally online. The sort of 3D where you can be an avatar in the the building, as it were, as in a computer game. And There is a concept that is in its very early stages in organisation design, but well advanced in things like car design, of digital twinning, where you build a computer simulation of the organisation. And so I think that we have a lot of tools that are emerging that we have no idea how they'll play out in the future. So there's one thing about how we think about an organisation in terms of designing it, like what tools can we use? and what would give us a sort of realistic representation. Um, A friend of mine has got a book coming out on the 4th of October called Data-Driven Organisation Design. It's his second edition, um, uh, Rupert Morrison, and he's got a lot about how really important it is to interrogate the data, which we haven't been very good at, and I totally agree with that. So there will be trends around data and really looking at it carefully. I think a sort of more kind of theoretical esoteric question is actually what is an organization um our supply chain partners part of our organization our contractors part of our organization our factory workers in who supply along the supply chain part of the organization because it's your very first point i think was about the or in maybe in our different discussion about boundaries of an organization how do we actually define the boundaries what is the boundary within which we're designing and People, again, I haven't seen many discussions around what do we consider an organisation, although throughout my working life I've been amazed that people are not putting contractors or external consultants or what have you on their organisation chart without whose input the organisation wouldn't exist. You know, why do we exclude contracted staff because they're not on the payroll from training courses, for example? There's a question of in, from a people perspective, who is in and who is outside of our organisation, but also from a systems process, which part of the supply chain is ours and where are the handover points? How do we design those? And you can see some very interesting difficulties around that. 
you know, the, what was that um, ship that got just stuck in the Suez Canal? Yeah. That was a, <laughs> the Ever Given, I think it was called. That, that has arrived four months late at its destination, involved governments around the world. And that's a, a massive... Org- the Ever Given owner, how is he or she thinking about that in design terms? Where are the boundaries to stop that happening again? You know, does, do they start lobbying to widen the Suez Canal, make the ship smaller? All of that sort of thing. So that question of actually what is the organisation is a critical design question that doesn't actually get addressed properly in, in most of the work I've done. I can go on and on because I think this is a topic of my interest and I think with your expertise, we can learn so much in this call. But I think it was fantastic to have you on my show. I think some of the thoughts and you know some of your opinions that you shared, I think are totally relevant. Some of the questions that you are leaving us with, I think would be relevant, I think in times to come where I think organizationals will have to address them one way or the other. And I look forward to sort of being in touch. And you know, I'm, I'm also looking forward to reading your book when it is released. So thank you so much for being on my show and accepting my request. Well, thank you for inviting me and thank you for your absolutely wonderful questions. They're so thought-provoking. I shall go away and think about them the rest of the day. It's brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Naomi. Okay, bye now. Bye. You've been listening to Recast with me, Saurabh Sardana. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. Also, if you want to chat with me, connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter.